1947, and America is enjoying a post-World War II prosperity. GIs have come home, crazy numbers of babies are being born, suburban houses are springing up, and Tom Carvel has finally created his ice cream empire. When last we left Tom Carvel, he was working with his brother Bruce at their Hell's Kitchen warehouse, a fitting neighborhood to build refrigerators. Their newest invention, or according to Bruce's wife, Bruce's latest invention, is the Dairy Freeze, which allowed soft serve ice cream to be dispensed onto ice cream cones. Its logo looks like an ice cream cone surrounded by lights. Part King ice cream, part Viva Las ice cream. But it was Dairy Freeze that put Carvel on the map. Because while business had been booming at 95 Hartsdale Avenue, Carvel was restless, ready to branch out. Bigger, it's gotta be bigger, could have been Tom Carvel's mantra. This is cold storage. If I had not achieved my goal, I would have felt guilty, for my father's purpose in bringing his children to America would have been defeated. That one quote from the 1976 New York Sunday News sums up Tom Carvel. He both idolized and feared the ghost of his father. Your usual father-son relationship, writ large. In that same article, Carvel said, While I was a child, I was subjected to name-calling that was incidental as compared to the reason why my father brought us to America. We were immigrants, foreigners in a strange land, but we were told beforehand that this was the land of opportunity, and so it was up to us to find it. The great American dream is as much a part of the scene of America as it ever was. Here, it is your privilege to develop a business of your own making. Here, a man is free, permitted the right to purchase property and build a house or a business. Let us not forget that there are many countries where even those simple freedoms do not exist. Are there still opportunities in this country? You're damned right. Well, damned if Tom Carvel wasn't right, because he saw the dairy freeze as an opportunity to franchise. As we talked about in episode three, food franchises like A&W and Howard Johnson were already in full swing, and Dairy Queen had just entered the ring in their unassuming Midwestern way. There was still the roadside store in Hartsdale, now run by Agnes and staffed with attractive young ladies selling custard and milkshakes and hot dogs to passing motorists, kind of like they did in the 1950s, minus the roller skates. Carville estimated that he grossed $6,000 each year and just in the summer, the equivalent of $125,000 today. Agnes held down the fort in Hartsdale while Carvel was in Fort Bragg while he was building his business and, as he said, and Linda Carvel echoed, Agnes did a better job than he did and the business would not have taken off without her. Theirs was a partnership back then, two immigrants together achieving the American dream, also writ large. And, as Linda said, Tom's brother Bruce was the inventor behind the showman. According to Bruce's daughter, Pamela, Dad and my uncle were supposed to be partners in the business, but there is a gap in the family history that Dad never talked about. My father was the company inventor. After or toward the end of the war, he began working on a special ice cream machine with a machinist named Luigi. In 1947, Carvel leased these freezers, known under the trade name as Custard King, for $2,000 to those who were launching their own ice cream business. And again, Here's where the story varies. 
Either these business owners did not have the proper training in how to run Custard Kings, or they didn't know how to run an ice cream business, or sometimes they just didn't feel like working. Put it this way, they didn't have the fire in the belly for the ice cream business like Carvel did. Many defaulted on their freezer loans to the cumulative tune of $18,000 or $250,000 today. Who was left paying the bill? Tom Carvel. Say no more. Carvel took business into his own hands, developing designs for Custard King stores and developing his own user manual for store franchisees. Whenever I put a freezer in a store, I had no trouble making my payments. Because no longer would they use his, or Bruce's, Custard King freezers for their own stores, they'd be in his Dairy Freeze franchise. And Carvel took out ads that made franchising sound as delicious as a banana split. Another new Carvel Dairy Free store ready for opening. This outstanding franchise store is ideally located. It's another link in the rapidly expanding Carvel Dairy Freeze chain of stores successfully operating from New England to Florida. Stores all have our exclusive copyrighted design, complete with our own patented equipment and exclusive mixed formula. For further information, Call Carvel Dairy Free Stores, White Plains, 68200. The financial hit Tom Carvel took on his freezers taught him this lesson. If you want something done right, you have to oversee it all yourself. As you can tell from this ad for a Carvel store opening that's disguised as a newspaper article. One of the rapidly increasing number of Carvel Dairy Free Stores that dot the highways is opening up September 17th in Port Ewan. Owned and operated by Harold and Hjordis Sturrock, this roadside store will serve Carvel's famed soft-serve ice cream, fresh fruit sundaes, and other intriguing specialties. As part of the festivities, the owners are offering neighbors a double-header treat. Any two items for the price of one. To ensure rich flavor and purity, the formula for Carvel ice cream has been carefully developed at the Central Carvel plant and all ingredients are shipped from spotless regional kitchens. Rigid laboratory control over all phases of operation is centrally maintained. Today, the Carvel chain is a million-dollar business, and the local unit is now a member of a group of more than 250 identical stores scattered across the countryside. Carvel used the Hartsdale site as a pilot store. Gone were the hot dogs. Now it was nothing but ice cream. He patented a space-age design for his new stores, and by 1953, according to an article in Mechanics Illustrated, Carvel had 250 locations, quote, dotting the landscape from Maine to Wisconsin, and there is a big waiting list for franchisees, end quote. Are these the same 250 stores that dotted the landscapes from New England to Florida? Who knows? Who cares? Say what you will about his integrity when it came to who invented what, Tom Carvel had a hell of a flair for marketing sometimes even bringing local bands and majorettes to play at store openings. Here's how he did it, according to Pam. The company was growing quickly, and Carvel Franchise offered a business opportunity to someone without any real skills who had saved some money. They could be trained in all the skills they needed, be given the equipment and materials, but it was hard work, 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, in season. A lot of franchise owners would make enough money staying open from the spring to the fall and then spend the winter in Florida or Hawaii. Tom Carvel took great pride and profit from his stores. By the time he switched the name from Carvel's Dairy Freeze to just Carvel, the average store, he explained, does a volume of $40,000 annually. Some larger stores do as much as 80000 
Of these amounts, the net profit for the unit owner is a third. Stores are closed for months of the year. Once ice cream cakes took off, however, you could kiss those snowbird vacations goodbye because from then on, Carvel was open year-round. But for all the business smarts of a self-made man, there was one giant misstep that cost Carvel tens of millions of dollars. At a dairy convention in 1956, Ray Kroc approached Tom Carvel and offered to go into business with him. Kroc had just taken over a burger franchise from the McDonald brothers, and you can do the math from there. However, Carvel could not, and Kroc's proposition of partnering on a burger and ice cream joint was met with, meh. Carvel didn't think the two went together. He liked his hot side hot and his cool side cool. So Kroc went ahead with McDonald's, which became the biggest franchise in the world and tormented Tom Carvel with its very existence. Carvel, a man who admitted nothing, who won court cases against the FTC, admitted this was his biggest mistake. Still, Carvel wanted a piece of the pie. If he couldn't get paid, he could at least take credit for launching the business. Carvel said that he gave Kroc a copy of his franchisee agreement, saying that the language in a McDonald's franchise was actually Carvel's. Whether that's true or not is unknown, though Carvel also said he showed Kroc the designs for Carvel stores. And if you look at a McDonald's from its early days, you'll see that its design is very much the same, with the golden arches. Among the items I found in the Carvel archives at the Smithsonian was a newspaper clipping Tom Carvel had kept. It said, Ray Kroc's first McDonald's restaurant closes. Tom Carvel did try and go into the burger business, opening up a chain of Hubie Burgers, named after his executive vice president, Frank Hubner. Hubner was also interviewed for Tom Wiener's oral history and said, There were eventually about a dozen stores located in New York State. It was still pretty much the same setup as the ice cream stores, but no one seemed to follow up on the idea, even though some of the stores did well. Perhaps it just wasn't as well as McDonald's. But the show must go on, and Carvel's were still popping up across the country. This despite the fact that a franchisee had to make one hell of a nut to break even in this business. A copy of a contract I found at the Smithsonian from 1982 spelled it out this way. And remember, this is $1982. A franchisee had to come to the table with $20,000 to license the Carvel name, $8,900 a year royalty to the company for use of the name in the secret formula, $2,500 for location engineers to choose where your store would be, $7,000 per year for Carvel National Advertising, whether you used it or not, $1,000 a year for signage, anywhere from $2,800 to $5,500 to install freezers, $5,000 for an initial inventory of supplies and Carvel special formula mixes, $200 a year for the trademark Carvel sign, and $500 for training, which that kind of makes sense. And speaking of training, in the late 1960s, another field Carvel was interested in was real estate, specifically the motel business. He bought a fire sale motel in Ardsley, not far from the first Carvel store, and turned it into the Carvel Inn, with the name Andreas added above the entrance. This is where Carvel would hold his Carvel College of Ice Cream Knowledge, a.k.a. Sunday School, as in the ice cream. A three-week ice cream boot camp that would teach you everything about the business, from ordering food to recording the weather in a logbook each day. With me now is former New York Post reporter Mike Shane, who is lucky enough to spend time at the Carvel Motel in the 1970s. 
So, Mike, tell us a little bit about it. Love to. Late 70s, late 1970s, I got an assignment from Advertising Age, the uh, Bible of the ad business, to go do uh, 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 an article on Tom Carvel and the ads that he was doing on television and radio. This was sort of the golden age of Carvel, and that voice was uh, coming out of every television and out of every radio at the time. He was just he just seemed to be everywhere. And they say, go get the story behind these these ads. They're uh, they're pretty unusual. So sure. Um, And because of that, I got to spend the whole day with him, which was really wonderful. Uh, The thing that obviously got me first was I was used to covering corporate advertising and it's certainly big deal advertising. Uh, I went up by Metro North Railroad and, and had some guy come pick me up and he takes me to Carvel headquarters. Carvel headquarters is obviously an abandoned Alpine motel that has been repurposed for the purpose of making it a company. So the, the there's a there was this huge A-frame lobby, and that's where the checkout desk, where the where the registration desk was, and things like that. And uh, the, but that's where the secretary was sitting, rather than the concierge. This was never had never been much of a high class. Uh, motel uh, to begin with, but he had obviously bought it lock, stock, and barrel, and had changed almost nothing about it. Uh, he hadn't gutted it. He hadn't. There was very little new parts of it. So when I was ushered in to go meet him, the first door on your right is his office, but it's nothing but a long hallway that goes down a wing, and there's nothing but motel room doors all the way down. And I begin to realize that. Uh, once I, they give me a little bit of a tour down the place and they show me the, all the different offices that all they've ever done is taken out the bed, the dresser and put a, a desk in there with some phones. So each one of these offices has its own bathroom with its own shower, its own John, its own, every one of them. Like I said, all they did was pull the beds out. He had the biggest of the rooms. He was the, there was only one suite and the suite was made up of two rooms. Uh, One was supposed to be the bedroom. And I guess one was probably in the old days, a sitting room of some kind. In the bedroom, what used to be the bedroom was Tom's desk, uh, uh, which did not have a whole lot on it. Sitting room, the second room in, in in the suite was where he recorded his commercials. Tiny little desk. He had a, a microphone, professional microphone and a tape recorder there. And he said, this is where I make all the ads. This is where I make all my commercials. All his voiceovers were done there. And that was it. That was the entire headquarters. It was kind of stupefying uh, to me at the time because I just had not ever seen this kind of thing before in a company which seemed to me to be huge and was obviously a part of everybody's daily vocabulary and summer rituals. I would have thought that there was going to be a Carvel building somewhere. uh, And there wasn't. There was just this repurposed motel. And that was when I began to figure out that Tom was uh, very cheap. If I wasn't convinced of it, then we began to talk about how he made his ads. The big part, obviously, was that um, was that Carvel didn't go and hire a professional to do his things. He did it himself. Um, and I asked him why. And he just said, I didn't I couldn't. When I first started making ads for the radio, uh, I just couldn't see paying some guy to read something that I was going to write anyway. He wasn't going to be able to do it as well as I was. So I didn't want to pay somebody else to do it. I said, I'll do it myself. The fact that he wasn't a professional and that he had um, this strange, very nasal voice. It's funny, the story is now 
uh, probably 40, 50 years old. And I remember the, the lead I wrote on the story, which was it had to be the nose. And that was just to say that the sound that he made sort of reverberated around in his head before it came out of his mouth. That that voice was completely and immediately identifiable as being Tom Carvel. That voice was when you talk to him, that was the same voice that you heard on the radio and as the voiceover on television. So it was pretty obvious that Tom was frugal because he wasn't going to pay an actor to read this copy for him. This was like a time before uh, at your Frank Purdue's and all that. People have been doing their own commercials since time immemorial um, in which, you know, the proprietor was really the best salesman. What was groundbreaking was that I don't think he had an ad agency. He might have had somebody who bought time for him. Oh, and he must have spent, I mean, if he... Or if you could get around it, not spend money on just ad time, because I feel like, especially I always equate him with uh, WPIX. I feel like I, he was always on WPIX, like every commercial break, but he must have spent or not a lot of just air time because we were bombarded by like Crazy Eddie and Tom Carvel. Well, PIX was the, there were five television stations in the New York market in those days, five broadcast stations, and PIX was the bottom of the heap. So they would have by far been the cheapest to buy. There you go. I, I had no idea. They were at the bottom of the heap, huh? Well, yeah, you had the three network affiliates, Channel, right. you know, the, 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 the Metro Media Station, that now Fox, Channel 5, and Channel 11. No, they were, PIX was always the bottom of the heap, partly because it was a Tribune station, and Tribune was just, was nearly as cheap as um, as Carvel, not nearly. <laughs> so they so they didn't have I mean, they bought the they bought secondhand reruns and stuff like that. They didn't they hardly did any programming on their own. Yeah, it was it was the it was it was uh, it was the bottom of five. So anyway, it was his frugality obviously was very impressive. Um, uh, and he was he exuded the the aura of a self-made man to say the least a and it was it was pretty obvious that this is not a team they were they were a team but there was there was never any collaborative part of it tom said people did that was the way the whole thing worked uh, the other thing that i remember very well because this is like i said this is a while ago the the alpine motel was a very good kitchen which he did put in that was what he did he put in a a, a pretty um uh, uh, elaborate, sophisticated, and up to the technology of the day kind of kitchen. Part of it was to function as a, as a school, and they would spend a week and they would learn how things were made. But at the same time, they also did a lot of experimenting there on how to come up with these feature cakes. Uh, that's where I learned that the whale of a dad cake was really like, or cookie puss was really the whale of the dad cake with the tail cut off. Um, that's how cheap he was. You didn't even have if he, he didn't have to make up a second mold. For the for for cookie puss, if you you could just use the old mold and just cut off the tail and put that ice cream back in the machine and you could have it have it again, and these were all the tricks that the franchisees were taught in this state of the art kitchen, um, and like I said, they fooled around with with uh, sprinkles and all the other kind of stuff, and like you you could you could see that there were several people at work on coming up with new Carvel features, but since this was a this was a a, a pretty sophisticated kitchen, he figured out that he there was another use he could have for it, and that was he fed uh, everybody in the office and everybody in the headquarters. There was free, there was there were there were free meals. Um, I think that was his sort of. He was very proud of it because um, I could see him standing at the end of the line where the cash register would have been, 
and he would talk to people as they came through. And he knew, well, obviously, he knew everybody uh, by name. There was someone in the company, and I don't remember who, whoever was doing the showing me around, who said, uh, Tom has no children. And he, he suggested to me that Tom was very paternalistic toward the people that worked for him because he had no kids of his own. And he really did try and uh, look after them, not so much in a fatherly way, but as a, perhaps a grandfatherly way where, you know, you're only on duty part time. Tom was the kind of proprietor who did everything himself and farmed out very, very little to outside operations, did not was not a fan of 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 hiring consultants or um, or anybody else who could. Uh, th there was almost no contracting contracted out. Nothing. He tried to keep everything in house I, for all. I, if I'm not mistaken, he might have actually manufactured his own ice cream making material so that he could sell it to the franchisees. One of the things I remember him saying was also was that uh, his greatest regret in life was that um, was meeting Ray Kroc. He liked Ray Kroc and they, they had this um, vision of uh, franchising and that, you know, that they could make a lot of money out of it. I guess they had talked about going into business together. Carvel didn't like the idea of mixing ice cream with burgers. And so he turned him down. So, I, I, you know, reports vary, but that's the story I heard. And it haunted him like, I, I don't know, Hamlet's father's ghost or whatever. You <laughs> want to, like for the rest of his life, he was always trying to do. He did try to do a burger thing called Hubie Burgers. Actually, he bought the motel because he was going to go into the motel business. And then he was like, I don't want to go into the motel business. But he was always like coming up with these, like he wanted to do uh, an ice cream supermarket. And uh, he was using his first store in Ardsley as sort of a pilot program for a lot of these things to see if they would work out. I happen to think an ice cream store is a fantastic idea but for whatever reason it didn't go down but yeah i think that was constantly playing in his head the fact that mcdonald's is i mean not even arguably the number one franchise fast food whatever you want to call it in in the world and he could have had a part of that and he didn't it's good to hear that because that's real confirmation about it because he was a very positive very up upbeat guy you know um believed in himself, believed in what he did very, very strongly, to say the least. But this was the one, him talking about Ray Kroc was the one dark moment that I can remember from that interview, so much so that it, I, you know, I can still think, I can still uh, remember it 45 years later. That was the one time when the cloud came over his features uh, when he was talking about Ray Kroc and about how he had missed that opportunity. All I know is that he had said that that the Kroc asked him about the design and uh, and uh, Tom said, no, go ahead, take it. Don't worry about it. And of course, when McDonald's became as successful as it was, he began to realize that he had he had given away a big payday. I went to the Smithsonian uh, where they have Carvel archives and uh, among his papers are one article of like the first McDonald's closing down that he kept. Uh, <laughs> probably last week. <laughs> yes. I, I think he probably was really, really competitive. And I think okay. that, yes, okay. he, he probably, he probably would have taken great solace in the first McDonald's that closed. I would have too, honestly, if I were Tom Carvel. Did you go into the interview with 
Tom Carvel with like one idea of what he was like and leave with a totally different idea or was he pretty much what you imagined he would be? No, uh, he was, a, he was, uh, I think beginning to end a surprise to me. Uh, the reason being that especially at age, at age don't almost, you know, they, they just didn't do local advertising or they did, they, if they did it, but anyway, I was used to everything being super corporate. That's what I was used to. And I was, and I assumed that because this was such a big company, they would, they would be the exact same thing. A lot of guys, I was used to suits and I was used to guys, you know, who had titles and, um, had their own offices and that kind of stuff. So when I, when I, uh, walked into what was obviously, a a a a you know, a local company could have been a lumber yard for God's sake. And, and, and that there was none of the corporate trappings that I was used to. Uh, no, I was very surprised. And I had, when you're in, when you're in corporate situations, um, you you know the, the 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 sort of the spirit of entrepreneurialship uh, is not really in the air very much. You know, it's that everybody has rules to follow, and this was not. This was this was a self-made man. And I, frankly, at the time, I guess I was, you know, in the late twenties or something like that. Even in my reporting experience, I had not run across a lot of guys like this before. I have since, but I just you know it was one of the first guys like that uh, um, who had built his own business that I ever had run across. And he was just a type I was not familiar with at the time. No, he was a surprise beginning to end. Tom Carvel needed some good press because he was putting the screws to his franchisees who in turn were putting the screws to him. Every aspect of a store was controlled and it would lead to lawsuits that would start to eat in on his profits. According to Pam, I worked for my uncle Tom every summer. I would drive around making what were called shopper's reports, going into the store anonymously as a customer. It was supposed to be a kind of checkup on the stores, but some store owners looked at it as spying on them. Some were breaking their franchise contract by using non-franchise materials. My Aunt Agnes showed me how to tell by taste if a store was using the right mix for its ice cream. Later on, my father developed a tracer to tell for sure if the correct ingredients were being used. Was this legal? There aren't any statutes we can find that says it wasn't. And in fact, according to Kathy Beale, a former attorney who played the role of Linda Carvel, Tom Carvel was ahead of the curve in this way, too. What he ended up doing, she said, was an early instance of secret shoppers. Stores will hire people to go in and shop and report on their experiences. Corporate snooping a corporation checking on itself. As Pam said, Other Carvel family members worked for the company, but to be a Carvel and work there could be difficult because some people in management could be viciously jealous of anyone named Carvel. Each had his or her own turf and guarded it closely. I worked under another name to avoid problems, but my uncle's secretary, Mildred Arcadapane, found out and made sure people knew who I was. Mildred Arcadapani, Tom Carvel's decades-long secretary, the woman whose last name all of our guest performers cannot pronounce. She was the woman behind the man at Carvel HQ, and also the woman who was accused of fraud by the government and murder by Pam. We'll get back to both of them next. And that brings this episode to a close. I'd like to thank Mike Shane, Ginger Hendy, Russ Hodge, Kathy Beal, Adam McGovern, 
and Dave Barkow. And Paul, what's next on Cold Storage? Next on Cold Storage, you'll hear from those who worked at Carvel. Find out how lawsuit after lawsuit began to crumble his empire, temporarily saved by Cookie Puss. Though this was the beginning of the end. Until then, I'm Paul Finnegan. And I'm Heather Quinlan, and this has been Cold Storage.